Anyway, I'm getting mad. So let's move on uh, from this. Welcome back to Michael and us folks. You know who we are. This is a Patreon episode. We've had a, a nice uh, little surge in patrons this month. So to those who are uh, listening on the Patreon for the first time, uh, welcome. Welcome to the Al Gore tier or perhaps the superdelegate tier if you've subscribed at that level. Uh, if you haven't, that'll give you the power to subject us to various things each month. We have a poll and you can participate for 10 Yankee dollars a month. Um, this is a bit of a fan episode, in fact. Every now and then we do a kind of mailbag episode and we've decided to bring it back. On the Patreon page, we solicited questions from you, the listeners. We ended up getting a lot of questions. I don't know if we'll be able to get through every single one. If we don't get to your question, I apologize. Um, maybe we'll do a bonus episode where we get to some of the other ones. But this is a way for for us, the podcast celebrities, to uh, interact with you, the little people. It's called <laughs> Noblesse Oblige, folks. <laughs> Typically, it would be very hard to interact with us. There are many layers between you, the listener, and us, the celebrities. There are various public and security people, as well as just the entourages that we travel with that help sort of create an informal barrier between you and us. In all seriousness, I mean, I actually really do enjoy when I get to interact with you guys. And uh, at some point, uh, Will and I really will make an effort to take the level of interaction, you know, beyond this kind of uh, Stone Age version that we do with these mailbag episodes. And we will of... we will come over to your house. <laughs> and depending on what you're willing to pay, uh, who knows what happens? Well, I was going to say, you know, we're, we're going to experiment with call-in. We're Everything's do negotiable, more... folks. <laughs> we're going to experiment with call-in. We're going to do some, uh, I don't know, some more YouTube lives, that kind of thing. We experimented with one of those during COVID where we all got together and we watched, uh, was it uh, Batman Forever? That's correct. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll do some more stuff like that. I mean, call-in would be a lot of fun, you know, because then we can actually talk to each other. Uh, but for now, Will, until just recently, was using a steam-powered laptop uh, to record in the Gore Lieberman studios. So we're a little behind the times here on Michael and us. And for now, uh, we're stuck with this more primitive uh, mailbag version of, uh, of interacting with you all. But we do have a lot of questions. Uh, so why don't we get into it, Will? So the first question comes from Keith, who asks if either of us have seen the classic Russian film Come and See and what we think about it. I actually watched Come and See just recently. I finally got to watching it on the Criterion channel. Uh, I don't have any hot take for you. I think it's a terrific movie, a very harrowing film. And, you know, I believe it was Francois Truffaut who said that it's impossible to make an anti-war film because war films by their very nature are exciting. You know, you would get drawn into them and they would get a visceral charge out of them. Well, this is one of many examples that proves that Truffaut didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the man's a fool. <laughs> yeah, doesn't know the first thing about cinema. Uh, I love Come and See. I think it's one of the most uh, disturbing and upsetting movies I've ever seen. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anything that, you know, depicts war uh, through the eyes of a child in such a terrifying way. Um, but yeah, really really good. Just make sure you have a strong stomach if you're going to sit down and watch it. Uh, we have another one here, a politics question for both. Uh, what is this rigid division of labor and expertise? Uh, someone asked, can you talk a bit about the state of the millennial left in Canada? Are there equivalent orgs to DSA Jacobin? To what extent do those developments in the U.S. have an impact there? Uh, who do you see yourselves as in conversation with? Uh, I feel like we've gotten a lot of good analysis of Canadian party politics, but I don't have a good sense of the above. Well, my first question is, where is our dime square? And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> 
We do have the NDP in Canada, which whatever you may say about it is a lot more than they have in the United States. And I feel like an organization like the DSA is operating in a framework of a country that doesn't have something like the NDP. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I get a lot of questions because I'm a Canadian who I suppose I write for Jacobin. And so I suppose uh, in, in some ways I'm kind of, you know, DSA adjacent. So I often get emails and things like that from, I don't know, people who maybe discovered socialism through podcasts or or, you know, I've just gotten into it recently, figured out after, you know, 2016, well, hey, maybe I'm not a liberal. Um, and they say, well, you know, what's the DSA of Canada? And they're always disappointed, or not always, but, you know, sometimes they're disappointed or just a little perplexed when I say, uh, well, it would probably be your local NDP riding association. I mean, uh, Will's right that the, you know, DSA exists in a particular context. There have been numerous efforts over the past, uh, well, more than 100 years to set up a left-wing third party of some kind, uh, going back uh, as far, if you if you want to go back this far, something like the uh, Populist Party in uh, the you know 1890s and William Jennings Bryan, although of course he ended up um, running on the on the Democratic ticket a few times. Um, the Socialist Party USA, I mean, that really peaked in 1913. It split over the First World War. Numerous other attempts to get things going like that. I mean, more recently, the, the Green Party in the 90s, there was an attempt to set up you know, the Labour Party. DSA, I think, uh, has figured out a way to uh, be somewhat effective. I think more effective, you know, in, in many cases than some of these other efforts because, um, you know, part of the insight of, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaigns and the kind of politics that have come out of them is that, well, hey, you can run on the Democratic ballot line, you know, you can do so with the support of DSA or Working Families Party or other third forces, as it were, you know, and there are trade-offs in any strategy and there's certainly compromises and trade-offs that are made there as well. In Canada, though, we've, I mean, we've had a social democratic or democratic socialist party for a long time, uh, going back to the 1930s, uh, I would say it's, you know, success successfully embedded that tradition to some extent in um, the psyches of Canadians and in, in Canadian politics. So really, there's just a different political environment. Um, again, you know, what, whether whatever your issues with, you know, uh, the NDP or or having some kind of, you know, established social democratic formation like that, um, it's just a very different political environment. As to what's the Canadian equivalent of Jacobin, I think the closest thing is probably uh, Canadian Dimension, which is the long established uh, organ of uh, Canadian socialist uh, discourse. And me, I keep trying to bring a sense of New York chic up to the city of Toronto, and I'll keep you folks updated on how that goes. Well, that person asked why the rigid division of labor. I think uh, I think we just uh, we just answered that part of the question too. 